Moonpig. Hello world and welcome to the Moonpig Tech Podcast. My name is Richard. And I am Jacob. And coming up, we've got a really good discussion about accessibility. Uh, but before that, we've got a little bit of exciting news. Um, we've been able to recruit another host for the podcast. Uh, so I'm very, very pleased to welcome Safi. Hi, Safi. Hi. Hi, Moonpig Tech Podcast listeners. Oh, you say that better than us already. You're such a pro. <laughs> Trying to be. <laughs> uh, we're super excited to have you on board. Um, and actually, the the conversation coming up, you co-hosted with Jacob, uh, which was a really good f- first induction for you, I think. Uh, before we get going, uh, could you just sort of say hello to our listeners and let them know who you are and why you're part of the podcast? Yeah. So, um, hello. Um as Richard said, my name's Safi. I am one of the software engineers on uh, the fine team at Moonpig. Um, recently promoted, actually, from associate. Um, really? And, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess, like, yeah, Moonpig has been my first uh, real software development experience. Uh, before I came from like a creative coding background and before that I came from a fine arts background. Um, and so I, I kind of got into uh, programming through developing more of a digital um, digital arts background, kind of fa- fell into coding um, in university. I switched degrees from fine arts to fine arts and computer science because I found it really interesting. And I was up for the challenge and boy, was it really challenging. (laughs) (laughs) I had zero computer science experience and I kind of felt like I was drowning half of the time. Got some serious imposter syndrome, Um, but it was really rewarding because I managed to make it out (laughs) of that degree and the things that I created, I was really impressed with myself, but um, I didn't really feel like after that degree I could, you know, make it in the software development world. Uh, I didn't feel like I necessarily had a lot of practical experience besides like developing cool artwork with programming. Um, and after I finished, I um, was teaching actually uh, creative computing to children from age five to 18. Uh, We were building fun games and, uh, you know, doing fun, like um, fun things with robots and different things like that, Um, which was great. I really enjoyed that. It it really, it was like really great on my creative side and, you know, adding a bit of the technical side as well. Um, But I didn't really see a lot of, I guess, career growth in that. And I wanted to really challenge myself in the in the software development world so I decided to uh to join a boot camp uh Flatiron which I spent three months kind of doing most of uh the kind of more practical side of web development or full stack development um and I think that was really key for me to develop um I guess, more confidence in the skills that I had and develop more of like a 
practical knowledge and portfolio, I suppose. And after that, straight after, I got hired at Moonpig. And here I am now, about a year and eight months later. Yeah, we are very glad to have you. <laughs> yeah, that was a long spiel. <laughs> no, no, that was great. That was really good. And I think it's really, really enlightening for me to see how well that you've, you've, you've done at Moonpig coming through that slightly different route to um to a software engineering role and in fact you know we've spoken about it on the podcast before we've had some excellent people come through the boot camp so um they're definitely a testament to those things working working very well for us uh very excited to have you on board safi thanks for joining the team thank you thanks for for bringing me on board this is super exciting i've never done anything like this before <laughs> Okay, so at so that point, we'll hand you over to uh, Jacob and Safi uh, to talk about accessibility. Hello world, and welcome to the Moonpig Tech Podcast. I am Jacob. And I'm Safi. And today we're going to chat a bit about accessibility. So here at Moonpig, we strive really hard to make our websites and our apps usable for all users. Um, and that includes people with various impairments. And we are really happy that today we have two of our engineers, Andy O'Brien and Robert Smith, which are with us, who um, will explain a bit what accessibility is, uh, how we make sure we do it right at Moonpig, and a bit of our journey. So, guys, do you want to say hi? Yeah. Um, hello. I'm Andy. Um, I'm a piece of furniture at Moonpig. I've been here for about three years and uh, <laughs> a few months now. Um, joined as an engineer. Um, got promoted a senior engineer this year and now um, engineering manager of one of the teams at Moonpig. Hi, I'm Rob. Um, I joined almost two years ago um, as a senior engineer at Moonpig and uh, I now work on the uh, editor team. Very cool. And the editor is one of the topics <laughs> around accessibility. Um, Andy, do you want to start us off with what, what is accessibility and why is it important to us? Yeah, for sure. Um, I dug out a, a quote I actually quite like to, to use to describe this. Um, but I guess with accessibility, you can kind of think of it in a couple of ways. So the main way people think about it is, you know, making a site usable for users with impairments. Um, you can do many things for that, making it keyboard accessible, making it screen reader accessible. Um, but another way to think of accessibility is just making it usable for everyone. So more inclusive slash universal design. Um, but for the former, um, yeah, I really like this quote. Um, I, I don't know where I got this quote from. I used it in one of my presentations about accessibility a while ago. Um, and I referenced, uh, some book from 1991. So I, I don't know, <laughs> I'd love to be able to say who it was from, but, um, it goes, so for people without disabilities, technology makes things easier. Um, for people with disabilities, technology makes things possible. So it just is a really great empathic way of, of looking at accessibility. So while we take, um, a lot of us take, you know, using websites for granted, um, someone with impairments, yeah. making a site accessible makes things possible for them. So, you know, they may not be able to go to a shop and buy a card, um, but they could come to Moonpig and have no issues buying a card. And I think, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. Um, I guess sometimes if it's, if accessibility is done wrong, it could the technology could actually make it more difficult. I guess an example I like to think about is, is banking. So a lot of 
uh, branches that are local to people have you know closed down in favour of online, and maybe for people who are partially sighted, if those banking applications are not properly accessible to screen reader tools, those particular people are going to find it much more difficult to access their bank accounts than they would have done at the physical place. So I guess that's also why it's, it's really important to get accessibility right. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I like to, um, you know, if that first one doesn't convince people, I like to think of it as, you know, don't think of it as designing only for users with impairments. Think of it as designing for your future self. So, you know, now you might be young, have no issues at all, but in the future, you may suffer from things like arthritis. Um, you might break an arm, for example, and not be able to use your mouse. Um, so, yeah, if you think of it in a personal way as well, um, that should hopefully give you another view of, of why these things are super important. It's also the law as well. You don't want to get a lawsuit for not following accessibility rules. I guess um, a lot of people have heard about the uh, Domino's example where they'd lost a court case around uh, accessibility on their website. And I can't recall the sums, but I'm pretty sure it's into the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they've uh, been sued for, not to mention the, the bad publicity that the brand has uh, received from that. So yeah. it's, it's not just a moral obligation. So Andy, you talked about like the different kinds of like accessibility that we do kind of keyboard and things like that. Can you expand a bit more on, yeah, what are the different kinds of accessibilities? So I guess you've got, um, you've got your standards in accessibility. So you've got single A, double A and triple A accessibility standards. Um, triple A is usually like the, the golden standard for it. Um, it's, it is really quite difficult to reach that standard. Um, because you have to have like certain contrast ratio expectations um, and cater for other things as well. So double A standard is usually what most people strive for and should try strive for. Um, so that, you know, caters for things being keyboard accessible, screen reader accessible, um, having, you know, a decent contrast ratio. Um, and that should be obtainable by, by most people. Um, and yeah, does, does that cover it, Safi? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I guess like at Moonpig, yeah, we strive for like the double A to also keep some of that styling because with triple A, if I'm not mistaken, it becomes the contrast of writing against the background. It's basically just black and white. Um, yeah. And obviously that does pose sort of issues with um, designers and product designers. I guess the way around that is to have, you know, a set of accessibility options on your site. So while you have, you know, your main colorful site, whatever, you have another option that will convert it into a better contrast ratio for someone that um, for someone that needs that. That's, that's a way to get around that. Yeah, but, you can sometimes involve difficult conversations around branding. And uh, this is certainly the case at Sainsbury's. So we're all familiar with like the Sainsbury's Orange. Um, so there was a lot of uh, logos on the website and so on and signs around the store that basically had the white text on that Sainsbury's orange and that didn't meet double A standards. So the, the business actually had to reprint all of the signs around the stores, anything health and safety related 
to actually use a darker orange than the brand actually went for. But obviously that didn't go down well with the branding team at all. So that was uh, really interesting to see how all that transpired. But it was good to see that they actually, you know, did what was the right thing to do. But yeah, that was, uh, it's, 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 I guess at Minpig were quite fortunate in that the, the brand colours for the most part do allow us to hit that double A standard but not quite the AAA. And I guess that's also like something that has happened out of consideration for these standards, right? Because if you look at the, the logo pink, it is relatively light. So we definitely have chosen colors that, that makes that possible. And it still feels like Moonpig, right? It still feels like our brand. So it's definitely doable. Yeah, I suppose if we had if we had physical stores and we had like 200 stores around the UK with signs all in the light pink, that would have been a, a different conversation, wouldn't it? Trying to get all of that signage updated and changed because obviously it's very expensive. But um, yeah, I think a lot, some of those brand decisions are made without careful consideration for accessibility. So they have to go back and fix all of that. It's, it's pretty expensive. So I guess it's, when it comes to accessibility, I think uh, the brand, like branding teams or organisations, should take accessibility into consideration when, you know, choosing what what colours the brand should be composed of. Yeah, and I think like on with that note, like you know, accessibility really doesn't fall on a single discipline like developers. You know, it, it's kind of across the whole um, product team. You know, like inclusive design and things like that. Um, and putting that together to really develop, um, yeah, a product that's great for everyone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like everything, everything you do should be user tested, and that user testing group shouldn't just it it, it should represent, um, you know, people with like uh, impairments and people with impairments as well. So we should always be user testing for those sort of more select groups. Yes. It's not quite as simple as just uh, testing out your bit of UI on um, a, sc a screen reader and thinking, you know, that sounds great. Because the way we might use that assistive technology could be very different to how a person with those needs actually uses it in practice. Um, one of the terms that you have mentioned a few times is inclusive design. What, what, what does inclusive design mean and what does it entail? Yeah, so I guess inclusive design... Um... You know, I, I would see that as just designing and building for every user. If you make your site more accessible for someone with impairments, for example, you've made it more accessible for everyone um, and better news, um, every every customer or user you have on, on your sites. Yeah, I think to expand on that is for all device kind of sizes also, if you're talking about kind of screens, it's, you know, from people with enormous, you know, monitors all the way down to, you know, the smallest mobile phones. And a lot of places try to focus their designs on the most heavily used devices. But really, your design should cater for all device ranges. I suppose that's where good responsive design comes in. But um, yeah, it's just taking all of those into consideration. I suppose watches are starting to sort of creep into that as well. So there's like an additional challenge there. I'm not sure how many people are going to be customizing cards on a watch, though. So. <laughs> Give it a go. <laughs> so 
how um, we've done a lot at Moonpig, you know, to make sure that the site is accessible. But um, how did we kind of get the business on board besides the legal requirements of, you know, we have to. Um, but, you know, what did we do to kind of make it a priority at Moonpig? Yeah, I guess I could talk about maybe what we what we did sort of, um, you know, before before we platforming. Um, and well, yeah, I guess what before that, I guess one of the ways I've presented it to the business, um, you know, try to make everyone see it from an empathetic point of view, um, help people see it from their own point of view, why it's important. Um, and then, you know, if that didn't get people excited, then um, I usually refer to something called the Purple Bond. And the Purple Pound is pretty much the disability market of the UK. And it's worth 249 billion pounds every year. Um, apparently, it's the largest untapped consumer market in the UK. So, you know, you can sell that to a business. So if we make our user journey um, accessible, you know, via keyboard or via screen reader, that'll, it's hard to put in the exact figures, how much revenue that will generate. But you know, when you're looking at a figure that's, you know, 250 billion every year in the UK, it's definitely going to tap into some of that. And that should hopefully, hopefully get, um, you know, more business minded people on board with it as well. And I think my question there is like, do you think it actually takes that much longer to build an inclusive website or an accessible website? Or it? I think you can get quite a long way with the basics. I know it's the in the community, it's kind of pushed quite a lot that it's a really simple thing to do. And I think it is, say it's a brochure-style website, it's, you can get there quite quickly and easily, but depending on what you're building, say like the editor, that's been a whole architecture had to be designed around, that you know, that it being accessible. So if we try we, with the existing editor or the, the old editor, whatever you want to call it, we wouldn't be able to just make that accessible just because of how it's been built. So, you know, you'd essentially need to rebuild the whole thing from scratch. Whereas a landing page, for example, that, you know, that's a lot more straightforward to make accessible because it's a pretty static web page. But when things start to become more interactive, you've got the UI, you know, changing on the fly, it becomes more difficult. And if you want to expand on on that with maybe the gallery pages or something, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely not as easy as just adding alt text to, to images, for example. Um, it, it takes, I think, it takes a good bit of effort to make um, a component or a feature on your site pro properly accessible. Yeah, I worked on the main navigation for Moonpig, and that was quite a big undertaking to make that keyboard accessible as well because it's not just a matter of hitting the tab key to move around the links, it's essentially using the arrow keys to move around the top level links and making sure the links inside the dropdown aren't accessible to the keyboard until that particular dropdown's been opened. And dealing with hitting enter on the buttons, does that open a dropdown or does it navigate to that page? You know, so that was quite challenging. We have to display different links in the drop down, if the users opened it via the keyboard, so they can actually access the landing page link, which you'd normally hit if you clicked on the drop down. Obviously, you can't do that with the keyboard, so there's a fair bit of complexity and you know state to manage there. 
Yeah, I think it's definitely better. And even though it takes a good bit of effort, it'll take more effort if you build something and then have to come back to it after the fact and then try and retrofit it with accessibility. So it's always best to have that in mind when you're actually building the feature. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. If yeah, if you if you do want to develop like to reduce the impact in development time, it's make sure you do that stuff up front and make yeah, it part think, of the initial design. And I think the editor is a good example there, right? We didn't rewrite it just for accessibility. There were more things that we wanted to address at the same time. So accessibility just was considered from the get go, which as you just said, is, is the right way to go about it. Is there a way to like automate some of your testing around it, right? We, we, we move things around, things change some of like, as you just said, a landing page or a gallery is like dynamic content in that sense. Is there a way we can make sure that we don't break accessibility along the way when we make changes? Yeah. So there's a, there's quite a few different techniques. Um, there's the low hanging fruits where you can add, um, like ES link rules around accessibility. So. I guess if you're right, if you're creating React components, which we are at Moonpig, um, if you're making kind of obvious errors like not providing an alt image to your, um, sorry, alt text to an image, you know it will pick up on things like that without without you having to write any actual manual tests. Um, there's also, yeah, there's a, there's a lighthouse in your Google Dev Tools which sort of well, i guess we all know it just runs it on the web page that you've hit and um, that'll run a bunch of ex, like inbuilt accessibility tests against the page so it'll test your color contrasts again all keys for images and all sorts of things so those ESLint and that combined will probably get you to say 80 percent of your way there and then i guess an example i gave around the the main navigation we wrote some uh, unit tests for those where it basically simulates the user interacting with the uh, the nav and the keyboard so that you know proves to us in an automated way that that works but yeah those tests didn't come for free we had to put in some time to, to write those tests yeah and those that, that'll definitely get you so far which is great i'd definitely say there's no substitute for user testing and manual testing when it comes to that because you, you can't it's hard to imagine how someone's going to use your your product without actually seeing it firsthand or getting feedback from a from a user. Yeah, I think where those tests I described come more more useful is sort of to protect against regression. So, if we've built a navigation, we've had it user tested, and they're happy with it, then we've you know well we generally want to write tests first, but you might update some of those tests based on the feedback you get. But you get to a place where we're protected against future changes to that nav. So if someone wants to refactor, you know, a piece of code in the nav or add like a new feature or A-B testing, they can do so in the safe knowledge that they're not breaking any of the current accessibility that we've implemented. And like you talked a bit about like user testing um, and at Moonpig, do we currently do anything um, with user testing with people who have um, maybe some of these impairments. I don't. I don't believe we do at the minute. It's something we've looked into over the last um, last couple of years. Um, we've 
we've ran through it with um, a third party um, group who specialize in that and they give us feedback on areas we can improve on. It's something we wanted to do a lot more regularly, but um, we just haven't got haven't got around to it yet. Um, but it's something I would definitely love to love to do. And like integrate closer into our process, right? Just yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You should, I guess, it, in an ideal world, it'd form part of your definition of done. You know, if we had someone who was, say, a permanent employee who, you know, could test these things out, that, that, you know, you perhaps run an audit, you know, through them. So I guess we've, we've got knowledge built into the various teams, but it'd be useful to have someone who's, you know, got real in-depth knowledge of that and, you know, is a user of those tools themselves. I think we benefit greatly from that. Definitely, yes. yeah. We do, we do user testing for nearly every feature we build, but it is... Um, we don't specifically user test it with, you know, go out to users with impairments, for example. Um, and yeah, that's that's our bad. We should definitely be doing that. And hopefully, hopefully at some point in the future, we'll, we'll be able to uh, move towards that. I like what you touched upon, I guess, about how, you know, each team kind of has, you know, some of that knowledge shared around. Uh, for someone who's maybe new at... Um, front-end development, what kind of resources would you advise to to learn more about accessibility and how they can develop with that mindset? There is a huge wealth of information about accessibility on, <laughs> on Google. Um, I mean, the, the, the site itself, WCIG, is, um, you know, really great for laying out the standards and best practices you should use. Um, that's a great resource for information. Um, you know, there's millions of blog posts on the topic. Um, before this, you know, horrible pandemic, I used to go to um, an accessibility meetup that was hosted once a month in London. And that was absolutely fantastic because, you know, you get to interact with loads of people that um, would be using sites and features, um, you know, from a a background where they've got an impairment and and see how they use it and they would talk about their experience with it and it really helps you see things from their point of view yeah there's there's two good resources that that i've looked at which is one of them is the uh a11yproject.com that's a great accessibility resource and there's a book titled inclusive design patterns by hayden pickering that's a really good accessibility book as well i think yeah they're my two kind of go-to resources obviously you've got mdm documentation as well going into a lot of detail around area kind of technology and that those sorts of areas there's quite yeah, a few yeah. react projects that give you stuff for free um what's the one that ryan florence created and i'm sure you know the name of it is it reach uh, reach, reach yeah reach ui because they have accessible modal dialogues and carousels and stuff and even if you're not going to use it it's useful just looking through the source code to see how they've implemented some of that stuff because yeah i guess they've tried to take some of the more difficult react kind of patterns and yeah made um, reusable accessible components for those because some things are quite difficult like models for example managing the focus state for those in an accessible way is pretty difficult to do 
Yeah, and the one you mentioned earlier, Rob Lighthouse, that's a, also like a great resource for someone that doesn't really have a lot of experience with accessibility because you can run, um, you know, specifically an accessibility audit using Chrome DevTools, and it will highlight um, issues you may have with your site, and it will link you to, you know, more thorough explanations of why you should do that and uh, the reasons behind it. Yeah, that's always good, right? Understanding why why something is better. I think also something that that I found as an Android engineer, like material design, right? A lot of the min sizes for like buttons, etc., are uh, because of accessibility. So, or like using focusable areas, just using those sizes as guidelines for what like a clickable area should be, yeah. like how big a clickable area should be, right? Yeah, it's useful. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's pretty interesting because a lot of these design systems have different opinions on what, on what size the minimum click area should be. Some say 50 pixels. I think Apple themselves say 45, and many others say 40 pixels. It's quite. I think Material UI, I'm sure it suggests 50 or 45 pixels, but then Google themselves on all the kind of tools use 40 pixels. So it's difficult to know like who is the sort of authority to listen to on minimum uh, size of things. Yeah. And right. So, and there isn't one as far as I'm aware. Yeah. I mean, I think at Moonpig we've finally settled on 40 pixels for buttons and so on, but there's still a bit of debate amongst designers for that. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I think the right, the right size is whatever works for your user. Right. So if you've user tested your product and, See, they're having issues with the button. Make it yeah. bigger. <laughs> if the button. I think the worst thing is, is okay, I guess the worst scenarios are where when you've got like a text button and the height of that's like twelve pixels or something. That the click area and that is really difficult. Yeah, so I guess the difference between forty pixels and forty-five is probably it's a bit harder to determine, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Is is there anything else you? you guys want to talk about? Um, I guess we touched very lightly on the editor. It'd be interesting just to speak a little bit about what we did to achieve an accessible editor. Yeah, absolutely. I think for a little bit of context, the editor is like the piece on our site and in the apps where you actually personalize a card or a product where you can like upload images, add your own greetings, uh, your own choose the font, font sizes, colors, and all of that stuff. So we can then print it for you. So, yeah. So when looking at the editor, there was like, it seemed like the obvious piece of technology to go for to build such a tool was, um, was canvas technology. But we quickly realized when we started thinking about accessibility, that essentially kind of the elements inside canvas are not accessible to screen readers. So we essentially had to look at a different way of doing it. So we landed on SVG, as that is a technology where you can visually, you know, represent something in a vector format, create shapes. Essentially, you can do everything you can in Canvas. In, in Canvas. Um, but I guess, yeah, SVG uses like, a, you know, essentially HTML slash XML tags, which allows you to embed like text elements in there. So there's a specific... Um, element that you can insert in, in an SVG and it's called foreign object and that allows you to then bake in regular HTML elements underneath it, say divs, spans, unordered list, you know, all your typical 
sort of components there and obviously with that you can then add those area tags to those and the great thing is is that these are all accessible to, to screen readers so if somebody's entering text on, on you know on a, on a card or there's you've just clicked on i don't know the bottom right page and there's a text element in the center of that card you know we can tell the screen reader what part of the card they're editing which yeah with canvas i guess you, you could work around it by creating functions that read things out but i think that could get quite messy and it might not be compatible with all the various screen reader technologies so we decided to go with you know a web standard yeah so yeah it's been, it's, been it's been really challenging to get get it all working um in a nice way it would have been easier just to build the the editor in canvas but i think we made we've made the right decision because like andy alluded to with that huge market you know we're not we're able to tap into that market now mm. and we do have a blog post on the topic of building an accessible editor um on our medium page so we can also link that in the description and the other resources that you referred to throughout this episode nice all right uh, yeah thank you you too for taking your time and chatting to us about accessibility anytime cool. thank you yeah it's been really and, fun and thank you very much dear listeners uh thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed this episode and we're gonna see you next time bye bye Move.